Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And this is it. We have arrived at our last episode of the year. And what we are going to do today is look back over that year and talk about what we did and so on. It is our, uh, uh, it's our year in review episode. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about our favorite stories. We're going to cover what we saw as some common themes and motifs that were present in the stories we covered, though I don't know, there might be some caveats as we approach that topic. We're going to look at some of the craft, primarily our favorite passages, and then we're going to give some announcements and talk about what our plan is for 2023. But the first thing that we're going to do is take stock of what it is that we actually covered during 2022 and figure out what are the parameters of what we're going to talk about. So in 2022, we did uh, 22 stories over 31 episodes. And I I don't know how many more times we're going to say 22 this episode. (laughs) But uh, anyway, that's what happened. And surprisingly, I think this is the first year this has happened. We only covered one writer who had multiple stories on the show, and that was Alan Moore. We did three stories from Voice of the Fire. We did those over four episodes. And so Alan Moore was more than 10% of what we did this year. We're going to have more to say about that later, but that that surprised me. We did eight commissioned episodes this year. And so over a quarter of what we did was, in fact, because of commissions. And we did a lot of writers who were new to the show because of commissions, which is cool. Uh, Some of these writers were uh, David Drake, Lisa Tuttle, Angela Carter, Margaret Atwood, James Tiptree Jr., and then also Daphne du Maurier. And that is a really impressive list. So we want to take a moment here just to express our gratitude for, well, one, the the generosity behind these commissions, uh, but also just to say that it's been great to bring new writers onto the show. It's been really awesome for us to be brought into stories that our listeners love. It's really meant a lot to us to receive this many commissions this year. It really is. It's so awesome to see so many of you want to participate in the network, in Elder Sign in this way, to share with us the stories that you love and want to hear us talk about them. And that's a real gift for us. And we really appreciate it. And I think I loved every single one of the commissions that we got to one degree or another. There were none that I really felt um, were bad. So I think our audience has better taste in books and stories than we do. (laughs) I think that might be true. Yeah. And commissions have been, well, they've been growing, right? They've been a growing part of what we do. And what that actually means is that we now have the unexpected task here of announcing that even before the end of 2022, we have actually sold out of commissions for next year. We are just, uh, we're just totally booked for next year already. I want to be clear that that does not affect Patreon supporters who get recurring commissions. Those slots are already on our schedule. And if people do join us at that tier or the tier below it, where you get a single use commission, we'll make room for that, of course, as well. But other than that, we have to encourage you next year to make use of the nomination system instead. So nominating a story is a lot like giving us a commission. There is a price tag associated with it, but it's far, far less than a commission episode. And then our Patreon supporters get to vote on what we cover, but you get to control the ballot. And so that's kind of the idea behind the nomination system. And it's been working great for us. We've really loved what we covered this year, which was uh, large in large part due to the nomination um, system that we've put in place. So we hope, really hope you'll want to participate 
participate in that and continue to participate in the way that you have. Yeah, actually, every story that we covered this year either was a commission or a nomination. We picked nothing that we covered on the show this year, and it, and it has been awesome. That participation is great. So if you want to take advantage of that, if you've got a, a favorite story or even a controversial story, something you just would like to hear us talk about, you can contact us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com or on Twitter or Reddit. And of course, you can message us on Patreon as well. And Patreon supporters get discounts on nominations, and there are some tiers where you get a handful of free nominations as well. And speaking of Patreon, there is one last thing to mention as we take stock of what we did in 2022, and that is all the Patreon episodes. Uh, We did more episodes on Patreon than we did on Elder Sign. That's the, the second year in a row that that has been true. This year, we finished our 15-episode series on At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, In fact, actually, as we're recording this, the final episode there, the super secret episode I did for people at our top tiers, has not actually even come out yet. Uh, And it's pretty (laughs) late in 2022 as we're recording this. But we finished up that series. Brent and I, my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, also started a series on Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. That will finish up in 2023. Uh, There were some other highlights, too, just single episode highlights, stories that I thought were really great, uh, including The Bleak Shore by Fritz Leiber and The Town Manager by Thomas Ligotti. All of that was a lot of fun. And I just want to say thank you again for making all of that possible. Our Patreon supporters are super awesome and help us do all sorts of really cool stuff. Yeah, I thought The Town Manager was such an awesome story. I was so glad to get another Ligotti story in on uh, even Patreon, even though it didn't hit the main free feed for Elder Sign. So yeah, thank you so much to all of you who support us on Patreon. It means the world to us. We get to do some really cool extra stuff over there. So if you're listening to this and wondering, "Ah, should I support these guys on Patreon? There are so many episodes of this show, of other shows on Patreon that we think you'll enjoy. So um, don't stop thinking about it. Just go ahead and uh, sign up for (laughs) Patreon and support us over there because you're going to get so many great episodes of this show. And in fact, because people are so generous, our listeners are so generous, we have already hit our next goal, a stretch goal on Patreon to do another bonus series. This is on Sherlock Holmes. And the main attraction is Neil Gaiman's Cthulhu Mythos Sherlock story called A Study in Emerald. This is, I think, a story most people know. It won, I don't know, all the awards it could possibly win. It's fantastic. And that's something that Brandon and I are going to team up with Brent for. It's kind of a crossover between Elder Sign and hanging out with the Dream King. But before we do that team-up episode, Brandon and I will do a series on A Study in Scarlet, which is the very first home story. We're going to do a handful of episodes on that. And Brent and I will do the final problem as well. So some Arthur Conan Doyle written homes. We'll all have that under our belt before we do the team up. And yeah, we've already hit that goal. So this series is coming in spring of 2023. I'm really excited about it. I mean, like super excited about it. I'm kind of salivating (laughs) when I look at the schedule. It's so exciting. And our team ups with Brent or yours and Brent's team up with me, however you want to put it, have been a blast. I mean, the episode we did together on The Man Who Was Thursday was like a real highlight for me, just hanging out with you guys and recording and talking about uh, a novel that we all really enjoyed. So I, I, I can't imagine that this wouldn't be 
as much fun uh, as The Man Who Was Thursday. I think it's going to be a great episode. I can't wait for it. And I think our audience has really voted here too for us to cover this. So yeah, hang out with us on Patreon and you're going to get these Sherlock Holmes episodes as well. Yeah. And then we're also close to hitting the next truly elder sign goal that we have on Patreon as well, which is for you and I to do probably five or six episode series on The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. So again, you know, if you're not with us on Patreon yet, joining today gets you access to all these things that we've talked about. And then you're also helping us get close to being able to do this bonus series on what is really one of the seminal works of weird fiction and something that I have been excited about for a long time. But let's uh, turn our attention now to really talking about what we did cover here on Elder Sign this year and pick some favorites. And we have each picked three stories, our three favorites of 2022. And Brandon, you uh, you get to go first. What was your absolute number one favorite story that we covered this year? This is really tough for me. It was really hard for me to pick out the top three or even a top one. <laughs> but part of that is the fact that I, I had a kid that went from being a newborn to one years old, uh, roughly within the time frame we recorded episodes for this year. So this year's been a real blur. Um, and so that's a big caveat, I guess, for why it's hard for me to really pick anything that stands out uh, because I was in the middle of this massive transition that is having a baby in the house with you all the time. But on top of that, I mean, apart from that life transition, so many of these stories just really deeply unsettled me, like my pathology, for instance, um, that to rank some of these stories as something I'd return to for pleasure would be difficult. And so that's really my criteria here, right? What story would I pick up to just read for fun and pleasure again? But I really had time this past week or two weeks to reflect on what we've covered. And I think I found a top three. So that was a preamble here. Here's what I picked for first place then. The story I'd first returned to, I think, for pure enjoyment, one that surprised me maybe the most was Old Nathan by David Drake. After the first story in that collection, this collection of novellas or, or novel, uh, whatever you'd like to call it, it really struck a chord with me and I enjoyed it so much. So to me, Old Nathan's number one. What about you, Glenn? Yeah, well, that's a great pick. Old Nathan, I will say, didn't make it onto my list, but it is definitely one that has stuck with me as you were you're talking about as being part of your criteria. And I will talk a little bit more about Old Nathan when we get to our themes and motifs as well. So I think that's an absolutely awesome pick. Uh, my number one was uh, something that we did actually quite early in 2022, and that was The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> uh, this surprises nobody, I don't think, but you know, this is a story that I read for the first time as an early adolescent and it just has stuck with me ever since i mean uh, just you know regularly going about my life this is a story that i daydream about i listen to musical interpretations of it just as part of my regular musical listening i reread the story fairly often though it had actually been kind of a long time since the last time before we did it for the show. But yeah, so for me, this one actually didn't require a lot of thought or any <laughs> hemming and hawing here. This was just glancing at the list. It was like if, you know, I had to pick one of these stories, you know, that I was ever allowed to read again, which one would it be? It was The Mask of the Red Death. That was a really fun episode. I mean, the amount of time and energy I think you've put into this story thinking about it, but then also, as you pointed out, finding other people who have reflected deeply on the story and interpreted it for, you know, their own music or 
the movie that I watched that I have not been able to scrub from my brain <laughs> since I've seen it, in part because of the child that they cast to play this you know, little person role or whatever, and then dubbed with an adult voice. There's so much strangeness in the movie. Not to mention, I mean, you can't beat Vincent Price. So yeah, this was a story I loved, but it didn't make my top three. All right. Well, what, what else did make your top three? All right. Well, so the next two stories that mean my top three in no particular order are Reeling for the Empire by Karen Russell and Sand Kings by George R.R. R. Martin. And Sand Kings, I will say, is tied with Blue Lenses by Daphne du Maurier. I love the paranoia of Blue Lenses, but I think Sand Kings eked out just ahead of Blue Lenses for reasons I can't really articulate. Maybe it was some of the world building that Curiosity Shop, I think, is uh, something that I'm a real sucker for. And I think George R.R. Martin captured that kind of sci-fi futuristic uh, space-faring civilization Curiosity Shop in a way that I didn't know I wanted or needed in a story. So... Yeah, those are my next two picks for top three. What about you, Glenn? Well, Sand Kings was on my list too. It was my number two. Uh, this is another story that has stuck with me since the first time I read it 20 years ago. I mean, it's it's beautifully written. It's creepy. It's pretty sinister as well. But then I think, you know, for you, the hook was, as we talked about on the episodes we did, for you, the hook really was the curiosity shop. But for me, the hook was Xeno entomology. And, right. <laughs> you know, like, so that's perfect for me. I think this has something for each of us. So I was, I thought this was probably the one story that was going to make it on both our lists. I, uh, I don't know. I owe myself a beer now, I guess is, uh, <laughs> is how this works. But it's awesome. I, I have really enjoyed the stories that we've done from Martin's Thousand Worlds setting. I mean, we've not done very many of them, but we did do another one over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast several years ago. In fact, that might actually have been the very first commission we ever sold as a network, which is awesome. But I have loved these stories so much that I'm I'm actually planning a solo series uh, going through these stories. In fact, that'll be available for people early in 2023. I don't have any more details right now. I wasn't expecting to talk about it today, but uh, uh, yeah, I just love these stories and I kind of want to do a sort of more focused study on these stories. And uh, I don't know, maybe when I get to uh, the stories that you and I have actually covered together, we can revisit them again or something like that. Uh, but then where you picked Reeling for the Empire, which is an awesome story, a histor- work of historical fiction about uh, women becoming monsters and and how all of that works, what actually is it that's monstrous about them and so on. Uh, I, I went a similar route there, but I picked The Lady of the House of Love by Angela Carter. This was actually the only story that was new to me on my top three this year. This one was a a commission. And I loved this story for the themes, but also, I think, especially for the real writing of it. I mean, the prose is beautiful. The narrative technique is heavily stylized. We get that moment right at the beginning where we switch uh, tense in, in the middle of the story, which is generally you know, something that's forbidden, but it was super cool in this story. So I just really appreciated the the technical skill of Carter. I did also love the gothicness of it. And I guess just in general, I'm hoping that we can do more Angela Carter in the future. No, me too. And in fact, I've snuck her into this show. Uh, she's going to be on my craft list. So yeah, mine too. We're going to read a passage <laughs> from this story later on. Maybe two. I don't know. Right. It might be one. This is the this is the real drinking game that we can now play with with listeners to see if you and I have picked the same passage from Angela Carter. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get there, let's uh, let's do a bit of an overall ranking. So we are now several years into the show. So we are just maintaining a top three of all time elder sign 
shows. Your current list, Brandon, is Purity by Thomas Ligotti, Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan, and The Inmost Light by Arthur Mackin. And so I wonder, does Old Nathan by David Drake make it onto your list of top three Elder Sign stories of all time? I think it makes it into my top five. Uh, and as the years go on here, Glenn, we might have to expand to a top five. But right now, my top three stands as is. Nothing this year really hit me as hard as these three stories have in terms of thinking really for me about craft and content. Um, these three stories are nearly perfect for me in delivering what they promise to deliver and in making me think about how to steal from them as an amateur <laughs> writer. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great list. I mean, your list right now is an awesome desert Island list. You know, if there was, those were the only three weird fiction stories I had to read again for the rest of my life, that wouldn't be, terrible. Uh, and I hear you. I think maybe next year we'll have to do a top five because we do read some awesome, awesome stories. We read a lot of stories. So yeah, we'll have to broaden that out next year. And yeah, I've got to say the same thing, actually. Nothing that we did this year, although I loved every story that we read, none of it cracked my current top three list. So The Murders in the Rue Morgue remains my number one uh, by Edgar Allan Poe, of course, followed by The Mask by Robert W. Chambers, and then The Transformation of Martin Lake by Jeff Vandermeer. But I did really love the stories that we covered this year. So I was surprised when I had to sit down to really think about this. But um, that, that top three might stay my top three for a long time. It's hard for me to envision a story supplanting any of those. So yeah, we'll definitely need to broaden out for next year. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine getting a story on the network that's going to blow one of those off the top three, because if I think if I had to replace one of those stories with anything else, it would be replaced with the transformation of Martin Lake. So I mean, right. <laughs> my top my top five is is still stories uh, probably from last year. The old Nathan might make it. I, I think there's a real joy that I get from the way David Drake tells uh, his stories. There's something about it that really resonates with me that what I found both in Old Nathan and then you covered that first Lord of the Isles book. I think that there's an element of just pleasure there that um, at least as a fantasy writer, I think David Drake does something that I really enjoy, even though I don't, I haven't analyzed it and I don't quite know how to um, critique it. But yeah, he's he's somebody whose narrative style I love. Yeah, same here. I had a real pleasure going in and doing a, a solo ATOS episode on David Drake as well. And I don't know, maybe that's coming to the network in 2027, our dedicated David Drake show. <laughs> well, all right, before we go and see if, uh, in fact, we have picked the same Angela Carter passage that we both really loved, uh, I do want to talk to listeners about something else that was new this year, and that is advertising. We announced early in the year that we were open to the idea of running ads for people so long as the product was germane to what we do as a network. Now, nobody actually had any Lovecraftian artisanal soap for us to advertise, but we did end up running a few ads for some books this year. Uh, I got a chance to read everything that we did an ad for. That was super cool. I loved all of it. But right now, actually, we don't have anything lined up for next year. So if you've got something that you want to let our listeners know about. Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a podcast or some music that you've recorded, or, you know, maybe it is Lovecraftian soap. You can let us know. We would love to help you let people know about your work. And you can reach us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com or via Patreon or social media, and we'd love to help you out with that. We'd rather really promote 
what's coming from you, what your creative interests are, what you're trying to sell that you've made, uh, really start a, a kind of grassroots ad campaign or ad service to our podcast network rather than doing the classic, you know, pet snacks or underwear detergent ads that you hear in podcasts all the time. So let us know what you're trying to get out there and we'll get it out to our audience. We really look forward to hearing from you on this service that we're trying to expand in the coming year. Well, let's go see if we've, uh, we have actually picked the same Angela Carter passage here, Brandon. So yeah, we're going to, we just each picked some favorite passages. We've each picked two favorite passages from this year that we're just going to read into the microphone and share with each other and talk a little bit about. Uh, so Brandon, what was the first one you wanted to do? Well, it's not Angela Carter. She's my second passage because uh, that's how I want to end my reading of passages today. So the first passage I'm going to read is from Looking for Jake by China Mielville. What struck me most about this story when we covered it was the way that Mielville captured the feel of an emptied out city, which was something that you and I had experienced recently, you know, as we were reading the story throughout the period of lockdowns during COVID, uh, when Philadelphia just kind of emptied out and neighborhoods were void of people and it was really eerie. So here's a passage to that effect. Uh, this is on page eight from Looking for Jake in the short story collection called Looking for Jake. I don't know how people are disappeared in these strange days, but hundreds of thousands, millions of souls have gone. London's main streets, like the high road I can see from the front of my house, contain only a few anxious figures, a drunk maybe, a lost-looking policeman listening to the gibberish from his radio, someone sitting nude in a doorway, everyone avoiding everyone else's eyes. The back streets are almost deserted. This is where it's all at. This is the center. Only a few stupid shits like me live here now, and we are disappearing one by one. I have not seen the corduroy man for days, and the glowering youth that camped down in the bakery is no longer there. We shouldn't stay here. We have, after all, been warned. So yeah, if this passage, if you lived in a city or a town that kind of emptied out during um, the height of the COVID pandemic, I don't know, to me, this passage just screamed at me, like, this is what it's like. The strangeness of the city is still there, but the people are are gone. Yeah, this was a great story that worked for us in a way that China Mieville couldn't have really intended, right? Because we read this story for the first time since having lived through the lockdowns of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think our, even our whole approach to this apocalyptic world that Mieville was, was building was very different from you know, what was going on with Mieville as he was writing it, which is one of the really fun things that we do about this show. And yeah, that passage you just read is a really eerie passage. That, that was a really haunting story, actually. That story was cool. I, I hope we get a chance to revisit that. that. That's definitely a story that I would, you know, didn't make my list, but it, it it's a story that I would love to read again. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's such a good story. And I don't know, I think we've said what we can say about it in that episode. And then also just now revisiting it. It's uh, it's still there's still a rawness to me in in thinking about that time period. And, and this passage just still makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. But Glenn, what was your first passage that you chose to highlight some of the best of the prose of the year? All right. Well, you have seated Angela Carter to me. So I'm going to get first crack at Angela Carter. And then we can uh, we can play the game of whether or not I picked the same exact paragraph you did, or if you picked the one immediately after, which is perhaps possible. But yes, uh, I'm going to read something from the beginning of Angela Carter's The Lady of the House of Love. At last, the revenants became so troublesome, the peasants abandoned the village, and it fell solely into the possession of subtle and vindictive inhabitants who manifest their presence by shadows that fall almost imperceptibly awry. Too many shadows, even at midday, Shadows that have no source in anything visible. By the sound, sometimes, of sobbing in a derelict bedroom where a cracked mirror suspended from a wall does not reflect a presence. By a sense of unease that will afflict the traveler unwise enough to pause to drink from the fountain in the square that still gushes spring water from a faucet stuck in a stone lion's mouth. A cat prowls in a weedy garden. He grins and spits, arches his back, bounces away from an intangible on four fear-stiffened legs. Now all shun the village below the chateau in which the beautiful somnambulist helplessly perpetuates her ancestral crimes. And this is the opening of, of the story, and I think it really powerfully sets the mood and the tone for the story. This type of writing just draws me in immediately. I mean, like, it just doesn't matter what kind of day that I've been having. This paragraph can, I mean, it can make me forget all of that. And it just immediately plunges me into this other world that I'm ready to go live in for, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, however long it takes to to read this story. It just really works for me on that level. But there is also the level of appreciating the skill here and looking at the sentence on the page and admiring all of the the tricks and techniques that Carter is using. There is a lot of alliteration here. Also, a lot of semicolons, right? A lot of it is kind of a, a single run-on sentence. It was actually three sentences, but two of them were really big run-on sentences that kind of just kept going and going and going. And there's a real skill and craft and artistry to the way that she does that that just blows me away. She's incredible. This story is absolutely perfect. The prose is perfect for the tone and setting of the kind of story she's telling. I'm going to be reading from a little later in the story. I almost picked that paragraph, but I thought uh, I should take a deeper cut because that first paragraph is perfect and we'd be foolish not to read it. So I, I kind of <laughs> thought you might be doing that. Um, but yeah, so I think the reason why Angela Carter didn't make my top three is because I try not to overlap what I pick as the top three and the passages that I'm going to read for prose. And I wanted to read this story. When I thought about prose, when I looked down the list of titles that we covered, this was number one in terms of prose. It's so incredible. But the passage that I want to read here is the passage that introduces our young virgin, uh, our sort of protagonist hero to the vampire. And this is a story where Carter has reversed kind of the typical gender you get in the horror, the vampire story, where the vampire is a woman, but the young virgin is a male and uh, a strapping young man he is. So here's the passage I decided to take to read aloud. One hot, ripe summer in the pubescent years of the present century, 
a young officer in the British Army, blonde, blue-eyed, heavily muscled, visiting friends in Vienna, decided to spend the remainder of his furlough exploring the little-known uplands of Romania. When he quixotically decided to travel the rutted cart tracks by bicycle, he saw all the humor of it on two wheels in the land of vampires. So, laughing, he sets out on his adventure. He has that special quality of virginity, most and least ambiguous of states, ignorance, yet at the same time, power in potentia, and furthermore, unknowingness, which is not the same as ignorance. He is more than he knows and has about him besides that special glamour of that generation for whom history has already prepared a special exemplary fate in the trenches of France. This being, rooted in change and time, is about to collide with the timeless gothic eternity of the vampires for whom all is, as it has always been and will be, whose cards always fall in the same pattern. I don't think there's a better gothic passage written. I've, I don't think I've ever come across one. No, this is awesome. I actually thought about reading this one as well. So I don't know. We, 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 we owe each other a beer or something. So I, I think, think so. This, yeah, we predicted what the other might read and then read, took the other passage. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know who else in the audience won, but we won at least. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is a great passage and just, you know, something that jumps out to me right away about the passages that we each picked is that we each picked the introduction, essentially, right, of one of the two characters here that I think we both were really enamored with the way that Carter was setting things up and setting things into motion. And uh, it's just brilliantly, brilliantly done. She introduces each of these characters by telling us about something that is bigger, actually, than the characters themselves. A a place, a a setting, uh, and a long sense of history, right? For the vampire character, it's the imposition of this long past, her family's ancestry. But then for our young British soldier, it actually is the future that is imposing on him and kind of reaching at him, grabbing at him here. And so Carter kind of sets this up where uh, they you know, their story intersects kind of in the present. And I think this is one of the things even that she's doing with her, you know, switching from one tense to another. It's just so beautifully and brilliantly done. I cannot wait to read more Angela Carter. Yeah, the, taking this book out, I have, you know, a, a box of books that we kind of cover for the podcast. Uh, there's a lot of books that make it to my private selection shelf, you know, but uh, this one, for some reason, found its way into the box. And I am really ashamed of that as we're reading these passages. It's getting coming out of the box and it's going on my personal shelf now. I mean, it is an incredible book. I'm going to read it maybe this Halloween, this October. I'm going to finish the stories in it if we don't uh, cover any this coming year. As we are recording, and this is the very end of September of 2022, as we are recording, another Angela Carter story has been nominated for the ballot. I haven't checked in to see how it's doing, and uh, I guess in some sense we're swaying the vote here, which we don't mean to do, but just to say that, (laughs) yeah, other people want us to cover Angela Carter as well. So I'm confident, if not soon, at some point, we'll, we'll read some more stories out of that book for sure. Well, Glenn, I am really curious about what second passage you chose to uh, demonstrate the pros of the year. Yeah, I was surprised by your China Mieville pick, though then when you read it, I was like, oh yeah, obviously that's a beautiful passage, but it wasn't one that I had been considering. And I suspect that what I have picked wasn't one that you were mulling over as well. But uh, I have a big streak going uh, with picking 
something from Robert W. Chambers, either to make it onto my favorite story list or favorite bits of prose or both. And uh, uh, I don't want to disappoint myself or the ghost of Robert W. Chambers here. So I have picked uh, a passage from the Demoiselle Dies. And this comes from the beginning of the story before the, the time travel incident happens here. As I walked, my own gigantic shadow led me on, seeming to lengthen at every step. The gorse scraped against my leggings, cracked beneath my feet, showering the brown earth with blossoms, and the brake bowed and billowed along my path. From tufts of heath, rabbits scurried away through the bracken, and among the swamp grass I heard the wild duck's drowsy quack. Once a fox stole across my path, and again, as I stooped to drink at a hurrying rill, a heron flapped heavily from the reeds beside me. And that's just the beginning of that paragraph. It actually goes on for a little while, setting up the the scene here, the description of wandering around in this heath, recognizing that he's lost and reconciling himself to the fact that he's just going to have to camp out here and then figure out how to get back to the village the next day, uh, which of course is not actually going to you know work out for him. But this was one of the few wilderness descriptions that we had this year. Uh, we've in years past usually had several for me to choose from, but even even if we had had several others, I think this is probably the one that I would have picked because I, I really love it. It's a, a, a type of wilderness that I really enjoy, this kind of open heath. I mean, I think Chambers here really captures the sense of spooky solitude that you get in a landscape that is flat and seemingly endless, but also utterly alive and punctuated by unexpected noises and unexpected encounters as well. Like there's just, you know, there's nothing happening here except I saw a fox, I saw a heron, which is cool. Like those are just regular mundane things about the world that most of us don't get to experience because we live in big communities where those types of creatures are either on the outskirts or having to hide from us in some way. But yet, even though this is kind of mundane, the way that Chambers sets this up, it feels horrific. It feels spooky and unsettling and creepy. And I I love it. He kind of goes against the green of having his character, you know, lost in some deep, dark wood and then in, instead has them lost in an open field or a meadow or something like that, which nobody really thinks about as being scary or spooky. But being lost out in the open is is just as terrifying, if not more so than being lost in the woods. There's a real cognitive dissonance that uh, comes with being in an open field or an open space and not knowing where you are when you feel like I should be able to see where I came from and where I'm going. Um, and so, yeah, I, I imagine uh, that you, you might have also felt a connection to some autobiography here in this in this passage as well, reading it and, and having done the type of hiking you've done uh, in the past. Yes, absolutely. But also, actually, not even thinking just about hiking here. I mean, you probably did in the Army, your uh, land nav course at PLDC, right, was in the, it was like an open area. It was, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And mine, mine was too. It was probably the exact same course, right? Same land nav course that we did. And um, that was harder than doing land nav, like in the mountains or the woods. And also- more terrifying when you realize I've screwed something up and actually don't know where I am anymore. And it's more terrifying for because there are no landmarks, at least not that you can see. And it, it's easier to really not know where you are when there are no landmarks, even though, yeah, the claustrophobia of the woods is a real thing, a real trope in horror literature. So I think this has actually been, you know, being lost in the open has been always more terrifying to me than being lost either in the woods or 
in the mountains ever has been. And I, I've been lost in all of those places. Land nav actually was not my strong suit. Yeah, we had to bushwhack across the Dolly Sods because we got caught on a game trail instead of the main trail and had to go across some uh, terrain there. It wasn't rough terrain, thank God. But yeah, we were all kind of freaking out a little bit and wondering, well, we know the direction of the car, but we don't know where we are in relation to the trail anymore. Uh, I will say the land nav course at Fort Bliss was the only one I was genuinely successful at. There was some pressure to finish quickly because some people had uh, died of heat stroke uh, previously in, in the class before us. So they were like, you know, drink your water, do the course, get to the shade. Uh, and I took that to heart. I finished that course pretty quickly, but it was out in the open and there was a lot of brush, uh, a lot of high grass, and and it was hard to see the signs and uh, figure out where you were. But I had much more trouble in the mountains. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we both got strengths, right? And uh, yeah. <laughs> although we also have just said that even when out together, we've gotten ourselves hopefully, hope, hopelessly lost, but we made it back, or at least we think we did. It's possible. We think we have. Yeah. It's possible. This we could haven't. we could be doing this in a in a hallucinatory stupor or in the afterlife. We don't know. There's no way of knowing. <laughs> there really there really is no way of knowing. That's the number one thing we all learned from Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. <laughs> well, before we move on to our themes and motifs segment today, we want to take a minute here to let listeners know about some other places outside of the network where you can find us. Uh, the first of these is that Brandon and I had the real pleasure to be interviewed for the September issue of Twisted Pulp magazine. There's some really great stuff in that issue. It's a really awesome magazine in general. And uh, we've linked to that issue in the show notes so that people can check that out if you're interested. And I do hope that you are. I recommend the magazine in general. And then also rather late in the year, I was a guest on another podcast. Uh, this one is a politics podcast called Varn Vlog. Now, it is not me talking about politics. It is me talking about stories, the sorts of stories that we cover on the network, though one of the things that that conversation was geared towards was places where we find political ideology or even issues of public policy in the types of stories that we cover on the network. And that show, again, is called Varn Vlog, and uh, I hope you'll check it out. Again, link in the show notes for, for both of these things. I really hope you check this stuff out too. It really benefits us when our, our listeners check out the extra stuff that we get to do. And we do this show really because we love it. We love the stories we cover. We love engaging with our audience and we want to spread the word as much as possible. So check us out in these other places, particularly Glenn. And if you have a moment of time and you think about it, we hope you'll spread the word about the shows that you love on the Clay Temple Media Network it all helps us out and we're here to really build a community uh, around the things that we love. So join us in doing that. So now we have come to the part of the show where we each try to find some kind of common theme or motif or element that links together at least some of the utterly randomly selected stories that we read this year. And I'm going to put you on the spot first, Brandon. So what, what kind of connection jumped out to you? Well, I already gave my full, I guess, slate of excuses as to why this year was hard for me <laughs> to kind of uh, engage, not, not engage deeply with the stories. But, um, 
carry them all in my mind the way I'm usually able to do because of uh, loss of sleep and then having a new person, uh, you know, move, start moving around and needing things all the time. Yeah, the sense of time just changes so much. Totally and, changes. Yeah, and and also we, to be fair to ourselves, one of the things that happened is that uh, uh, in order to give you some time off from recording to welcome this new person into your life and into your home, we recorded half of this year um, well in advance and then took a huge break and then recorded the rest of it. So there was a big uh, caesura, a big punctuation mark, uh, or at least a big semicolon right in the, uh, you know, in the middle of the year for us. And so, yeah, the whole sense of time here has been a little bit strange. So I think I had a similar experience that you did trying to look through and see some common threads and, and so on. But, but anyway, what did you find? Yeah. An M dash, if you will, uh, in time between, <laughs> between episodes. So, one of the things I want to say, though, about that and, and about this year is that we really did a broad sampling within the genre, which I really loved. And that certainly contributed to our desire to maybe focus a little bit of our you know themes or elements, story elements on next year, which we'll talk about at the end of the show. But, you know, as I sort of scanned the stories we read this past year, you know, as we've been saying, obviously, a few concepts did jump out to me as connecting the stories, at least thematically. And one thing I saw uh, come up regularly was the author's engagement um, with this idea that the natural order of things, the way the world functions on its own, is very specific, especially when you acknowledge there are monsters in the world. In fact, monsters might be part of the natural order and they might have their own plans. The idea I'm trying to get across here is maybe best expressed in Love is the Plan, The Plan is Death by James Tiptree Jr. You know, you'll remember that that's a story about the track of fate that dictates the life cycle of an alien species, even though the characters of that story have genuine emotions and feelings that they struggle to reconcile with the quote-unquote plan. So maybe another way to put this theme is that the world is already possessed to some degree and that the plan is always for the demons to come out and take over. Something is keeping them at bay, but it's sort of a, a thin veneer. It's a, it's a, it's a broken levy that's already, that's always keeping back the monsters. And this is something that we see that's explicit in the way station and looking for Jake. Uh, that was by, you know, Stephen King, China Mieville, even in Daphne du Maurier's The Blue Lenses. I don't know. We saw it in Neiman's Wasser and some children wander by mistake, even to some degree in the gospel of Mark, something is always ready to break down and the true nature of the world is ready to reveal itself. Now, maybe this is just a super generic feature of horror, uh, but the way that many of the stories we covered this year were encountering this idea, um, there was something about the revelation, the encounter with the revelation of the true nature of things and the way that that revelation had a specific kind of emotional fallout or struggle for the characters. So maybe the stories were really too different from one another to point to anything other than uh, a feature of the genre that maybe I hadn't thought about before. So it really struck me this year on a technical level, just how important it is in crafting horror to know the 
true nature of the world that your characters are in and how either they unravel the world or are unraveled by it. Yeah, this is awesome. I think just maybe even taking one step back from you know your level of specificity there, Brandon, this is the first year that we've had this many monster stories. Yeah. Like, and and yeah, I think you're right in kind of saying, well, I mean, think, you know, monsters are kind of a part of horror. <laughs> it's like a it's kind of a central standout feature of horror stories, except that we've had very few monsters. We just haven't done that many monster stories. And then yeah, this year we we did. I, I will say that uh, some of that was and, and even many in fact most, I think, actually, of the examples you just gave all came to us from a, a, a single Patreon supporter who wanted to nudge us in that direction. And so that's that's really spectacular that we got to do that. And that was a real through line for these stories. And and also asking us you know, some pretty big questions about you know, what is it that makes something a monster versus a person? Or can you be both? Can you be a monster and a person at the same time? You know, how does society decide what monstrous is? Where does it come from? How do we treat monsters? This was super cool. I mean, we did some real exploration of that in stories like Reeling for the Empire and Lucis Naturae by Margaret Atwood. And yeah, that's been really awesome. I was glad we got so many monster stories this year. I really was too. I mean, I, I was also in terms of themes and motifs, really going to think about justice. And then I realized that this is really uh, that justice question that I think we encountered a lot of the, in a lot of the stories were really about the nature of the world, you know, and whether or not our emotions, our emotional life um, is acting in favor in some kind of monstrous fate or whether our genuine feelings about things are providing us a certain justification to act monstrously. And these were also things that we saw a lot of in these stories. And um, I think that's really the the draw of the monster story. And I never really thought about it because I, when I think of monster stories, I think about kaijus kind of like the Godzilla types of stories or, or King Kong or anything along those lines where the monsters are huge. But in in, in most of the stories we read this year, the monsters were a corrupted version of us or a making strange of the way we think that our genuine feelings make us exempt from fate to some degree. I do think that those are the most successful types of monster stories, right? Where the monster is you know, comes from us, is something similar to us. I mean, we think of, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, I think is really great. And really even also zombies and vampires, right? They're corrupted versions of us in some way can do different things within those, you know, the features of a zombie story or a vampire story to play with that for sure. But then also, of course, yeah, we get other types of monsters here, like uh, women turning into silk moths, which was, you know, I just didn't think that a story like that existed. It turns out it does. And it's awesome. Uh, not something we did this year, but of course, you also with Valerie have spent some time talking about a stretchy person who hibernates a lot, but eats <laughs> livers, which is utterly unsettling. Like if that had actually been something that didn't appear to be human, that would have been way less unsettling, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I just want to recommend Karen Russell again because she's awesome and everybody should be reading more of her. Yeah, including us. I hope we'll get a, an opportunity to do that. I do too. Glenn, you had uh, another idea about kind of what tied the year together. Yeah, I, I'm going to talk about historical fiction here, although really all I'm going to say is... Uh, 
Hey, we did a lot of it. We did a lot of it this year. I don't know that I have much else to say beyond that. But the list includes, you know, stories that are, you know, contemporary or or near contemporary to us that take place in other times. Uh, most obviously, this includes all the stories from Alan Moore's Voice of the Fire. We did three of them this year. But it also includes Old Nathan by David Drake, and then also Lucis Naturae by Margaret Atwood, and again, Reeling for the Empire by Karen Russell. But we also have writers from the mid-20th century who are looking back as well. This includes Robert Aikman, includes Angela Carter, also Borges. But then also, also, there is Robert W. Chambers, who gives us a 19th century story about traveling back to early modern Brittany. Even the Sargasso Sea stories by Hodgson are historical fiction in that they take place a generation before Hodgson wrote them. It's maybe not a central or significant feature of those stories, but it's there nonetheless, and I think would have stood out more to contemporary readers than it does to us. And then even from Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft this year, we had historical fiction. Uh, both of them wrote stories about an imaginary prehistory. Uh, of course, Howard right, was really just writing a Viking warrior story, but setting it somewhere else uh, for reasons we don't have to go into on this show. But yeah, almost every story we read this year was historical fiction in some way. I'm not really sure how that happened. I also will say that it happened without my noticing it at the time. Like I was aware of the monsters happening, you know, during the course of the year and actually kind of thought that that might be something I would pick to talk about. But then when I went to look over this list, I realized that 80% of it was historical fiction and just kind of sl- like did that on the sly, you know, like I didn't notice that uh, that was happening while it was happening. But it's an interesting, interesting move because that's not something that I tend to think of as being a central feature for either weird fiction or horror fiction. Even the wasteland evokes the sense of the old West, you know, that that's central to those stories, at least the gunslinger uh, king moves beyond that as the stories continue. He takes us to contemporary New York City and all this other stuff. He ages his world up a little bit. But the wasteland in particular really evokes this kind of abandoned uh, Old West sort of setting. And I think that one of the things that horror relies on in using this uh, sense of the past or the setting of the past is that for generations before we were born or entered into the world, we carry around with us this sense of enchantment. And what horror does so well is, I think, enchant the past with the with a kind of uh, dark spell. And that's one of the things we see in the story, because what remains from the past in the popular consciousness for most of us are either the really weird things that happened or the awful things that happened. <laughs> and so the past is always haunted in this way, I think, for us. And uh, it's really cool to see these stories setting there. Though uh, Robert W. Chambers wrote a nice, beautiful little uh, romance set in the past that I think we both enjoyed for different reasons. Yeah, the, you and I both are big rom-com fans, as we talk about <laughs> yes. all the time. That that might be coming in 2030, our, our rom-com show. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking ahead to 2023, we, we have decided to try to really centralize actually the the search for the quest for coherent themes and motifs or or unifying elements in what we're covering and to that end we had our patreon supporters choose two themes for us and then also choose some stories within those themes that will 
make up about half of what we're going to cover next year. So in our year in review show for uh, 2023, I think this segment of the show will be a little more robust than it has been in years past, which um, I hope will be fun. I mean, it's an experiment, right? We'll see if it's fun that we are going to do it again at least one more time to see how that goes. And here, I think we'll just run through the themes that our supporters selected and talk about what some of the the writers are who we're going to be covering. And we did this over three votes. So we did this over a period of six months. And our listeners really chose from a very wide pool of possible themes. And what it came down to is that our listeners wanted us to read stories that shared a common genre. And that genre is occult detectives. Though I will say that that only narrowly beat out the genre of ancient and forgotten rituals. Now, everything that was on that ballot was awesome, though I will say that uh, the Cthulhu mythos and then ghost stories uh, came in dead last, actually, with almost no one voting for them, which was a, a huge, huge surprise for me. But what we're going to be covering for Occult Detectives next year is Karnacki the Ghost Finder by William Hope Hodgson. We're going to return to John Silence by Algernon Blackwood. Also, Le Grandin by Seabury Quinn. And then we're going to meet a detective who's new, uh, at least for the show, Brandon, but is also new to me at all and maybe to you as well. This is Aylmer Vance by Alice and Claude Askew, a husband and wife uh, co-writing team. That'll be kind of interesting. And then we're going to do two classics. Uh, I think both of them controversial in, uh, well, different ways from each other, but I think there will be a lot of fodder for discussion here. One of them is The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft. And then the last one on our list is The Shining Pyramid by Arthur Mackin. Uh, I'm really excited to, to do this. We both love occult detectives, and I think these are some <laughs> great, great case studies in it. I could not be more excited to dive into this genre. I mean, I, I wonder if part of the reason why Cthulhu and ghost stories uh, came in last or ancient and you know forgotten rituals came in behind occult detectives is because you might encounter all this stuff in an occult detective story, but what we're really looking for is that voice and tone and point of view of the of the detective person. So I couldn't be more excited about this. As I said, I cannot wait to get back to John Silent's stories. I really want to find a way through those stories and make an argument that Algernon Blackwood had read Kierkegaard and named John Silence after uh, one of Kierkegaard's pseudonyms. I don't know. Maybe that'll be another end of year thing we get to <laughs> next year. Uh, but my God, thank you so much to our audience for selecting the thing that I would have picked if you were not here. Yeah, I'm really excited about, uh, well, a, a year from now when we get to have the kind of wrap-up conversation about all of these as well, but also super interested in doing the work. The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft is uh, infamous for a variety of reasons, but I have not actually read it in a long time. So I'm really interested in revisiting that through the lens of well, doing the show and having done the show for a long time. I think that will be a really important episode for us to to, to cover. But that is not the only theme that listeners picked for us. Uh, the other theme that our Patreon supporters chose was for us to cover a series of stories by a single author, right? A series of stories by the same author. And the author they chose was Borges. And Borges just totally 
ran away with this. He got more than twice as many votes as the second place writer. Uh, that was Thomas Ligotti. But Borges also beat out Lovecraft, also beat out Angela Carter and William Ope Hodgson, among others. And so we are going to do five Borges stories next year. And of course, we did one this year. I love that story. So I'm really excited for a, uh, a concentrated dose of Borges coming up. I cannot wait for this either. I mean, there's kind of two types of Borges stories in my mind. There's the sort of philosophical play with idea stories. Uh, and and the, I mean, all of his stories have that. But that Gospel of Mark was more that story. It's more just like a, an almost a chronicle of an event. You know, he's just kind of putting things down on paper and the story moves in maybe unfamiliar ways. And then there's stuff where he does things that feel more familiar and I love them all. And I cannot wait to do this either. You know, by the time this year's over, our goal, which has been maybe the secret goal of the podcast all along is to have you telling your own occult detective stories in the, in the voice and style of Borges. So uh, you're welcome <laughs> in advance. And uh, we're really excited for this year. Yeah, it's possible one of these Borges stories that we're going to do actually is an occult detective story. I don't know. I don't know Borges that well. That's going to be something that's really exciting for me. And of course, Borges is super important both for Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman, like the, you know, the other single author studies we actually do on the network. So this is important homework for us to, to do, which will be fantastic. And as I said, we are going to do this again for 2024. And then, you know, we'll assess whether or not this has been a fun or, you know, useful, I guess, practice anyway. So if you are interested in having a say in what the big themes that we're going to do for 2024 is, we will start voting on that uh, early in 2023. I think March is when we will uh, begin that series of ballots to, uh, to do that. So if that interest you, if that excites you, and you're not with us already on Patreon or aren't with us at the voting level, uh, now's a great time to either join us or uh, upgrade your level of support. Uh, And of course, we're so grateful for those of you who are able to do that. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. And that's going to do it for 2022 for Elder Sign. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. As we always do, uh, we're going to take a break for the holidays. The whole network will be. So Elder Sign, Glenn and I will be back on January 10th with Bubba Hotep by Joe R. Lansdale. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm already grinning thinking about that story. But that's <laughs> going to be a few months before we actually sit down and, and read that one together. But I'm, I'm psyched about that. And hey, this holiday break, it is a great time to join us on Patreon. If you haven't already, you're just in time for our two Christmas episodes, one of which is a pretty spooky story by Edith Nesbitt. And of course, as we said earlier, there's more than a dozen hours of us talking about At the Mountains of Madness that we hope can keep you company, you know, if you've got a a long journey for the holiday or something like that. So please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. But until next year, we greet you and say, Happy New Year.